Hi, I'm Valerie Moisel. Over 20 years ago, I co-founded my company with a creative spark, an entrepreneurial spirit, and a fearless attitude. I've long dreamed of sharing a space where I can interview successful women and hear them talk from their hearts about how they found their way. What I'm learning is it's not such a linear path. We all have what I call the four S's. The initial spark, the snag which trips you up, the shift that helps you find your way to the final S, success. No, not always in that order. And yes, sometimes the steps repeat. Together, we will learn from each other and be inspired. These are women who rule. This is She Dynasty. Wow, am I excited to introduce you to our guest on She Dynasty today. We are going to be speaking with the remarkable Paula Madison. She has had an incredibly rich career with major accomplishments, but today she is the chairman and CEO of Madison Media Management, LLC, a Los Angeles-based media consultancy company with global reach. She also serves as a founding partner with the group LLC, a high-level strategy, marketing, and communications consultancy also headquartered in Los Angeles. Paula has received numerous honors and awards and was named one of the 75 most powerful African Americans in corporate America by Black Enterprise Magazine in 2005, and she was included in the Hollywood Reporter's Power 100. Paula is also the former owner and CEO of the Los Angeles Sparks WNBA basketball team and the former president and general manager of NBC4 Los Angeles. And if that's not enough, she's also produced a full-length documentary film called Finding Samuel Lowe, which is a personal journey to find her long-lost maternal Chinese grandfather's family. Okay, so hi, Paula. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for inviting me. So just a little history. I went to a women's event in Playa Vista a few weeks ago, and you were one of the speakers on the panel. And it was you and a few other awesome women, and you were answering all these questions. And I just remember the entire audience, and obviously you're up there, and you know there's over 100 women there, so you don't kind of hear the rumblings of what's happening in the audience. But Wow, everybody was so wanted you to be the one to like answer all the questions because you your your wisdom and everything you were saying was just so powerful and you've done so much and accomplished so much. So I'm excited to talk to you today. Well, you're very kind. So your story is incredible. And um, I'm going to start by saying that you have produced a full length documentary film about finding your maternal grandfather's family. And we're going to talk about it later, but it seems like from your pre-interview questions that so much of this story um, kind of defines who you are and what makes you and what drives you. So I think it's going to be kind of intertwined. I actually had the pleasure of watching the documentary. I was so moved by it. And it was just a, such so beautifully, a simple story, but a beautiful, beautiful story. So I hope that everybody who is listening today will take the time to go find it and watch it. Um, it's called Finding Samuel Lowe. Yes. Okay. It is called Finding Samuel Lowe. And uh, parenthetically, uh, my grandfather was, in fact, Chinese, and his name was Luo Ting Chao. And his name was Samuel Lowe because when he boarded a ship in Hong Kong, the British ship's agent heard Law and just said, Lowe, okay, your name's Samuel Lowe. Oh, wow. So that is why that name Samuel Lowe is meaningful to my family, but that is not our family. So name. how do you pronounce it again? Law. 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 Okay, interesting. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's start from the very beginning of your journey. You were the child of Jamaican immigrants, and yet you were raised in Harlem, New York, correct? I was born and raised in Harlem, yes. Oh, you were born and raised Mm -hmm. in Harlem. Okay, so tell us a little bit about your childhood, Sure. what you remember of it. Oh, sure. My mother uh, was born to an African-Jamaican woman and a Chinese man. My Chinese grandfather departed Hong Kong at the age of 15 in 1905. Uh, At that point, there was probably a couple of thousand Chinese in Jamaica already, which, as you know, is a small island in the Caribbean. Small but very powerful. I was really interested to find out that there was such a um, heavy heavy Chinese Chinese. population. Can you talk about that a bit? Sure. I come from a cultural 
minority group of almost 80 million people. I say cultural because most of these people are actually Han Chinese. That's the, the genus of the Chinese people predominantly. So Hakka is um, my cultural minority group. And Hakka means guest, G-U-E-S-T. And I like to say that's the nice way of saying it. It's more invaders or interlopers. So among the very first migrants uh, who departed China to settle in the rest of the world were the Hakka people. Mm -hmm. And that is why when you go to the Caribbean, you might see a certain look about the people in the Caribbean. Many of them are mixed race with Chinese or Indian. That is so interesting. I was so excited to learn that fact. I had no idea. Okay, so back to Harlem. You were born and raised right. there. So my mother immigrated to the United States in 1945. Um, she, of course, is uh, half Hakka. So her mother was um, African Jamaican, mm -hmm. and her father was Chinese. Mm -hmm. Okay. When she applied for a visa to the United States, she received a visa under the Chinese immigration quota. Um, the Chinese immigration quota came about after centuries of Chinese not being allowed to enter the United States with visas, right? But the United States Congress limited the numbers of Chinese who could come to the United States because Chinese people were largely feared and people were very suspect of them. So my mother, when she applied for a visa, she held a British passport and her father was Chinese, so she was allowed to come to the U.S. How interesting. Her husband, my father, who was not her husband at the time, he wanted to come to the United States, but the United States was not offering visas to Jamaicans. So my father came as a stowaway in pursuit of my mother. She thought she was ending the relationship. No such thing. So he found her with her relatives in Harlem. And uh, from there, within a few months, they married. Probably a year and a half or so uh, later, my oldest brother was born, then my older brother was born, and then I was born. So we grew up in Harlem as three decidedly African-American children of a woman who looked fully Chinese and who was, in fact, separated from her black husband. And importantly, she was taken away from her father because when he, my grandfather, told her mother that he was going to marry a Chinese woman, his family was sending for him to marry sight unseen in Jamaica, and he wanted to raise their daughter with the Chinese soon-to-be wife, my grandmother, I guess, went ballistic and said, not, not only no, but you'll never see your daughter again. And that is, in fact, the history of how this split in my family came about. Interesting. Okay, so tell us a little bit more about your childhood. Tell us about your home life. Uh, what was it like in Harlem? Well, my home life was, for the most part, growing up in the middle of people who were grew growing up the same way I was pretty much I had a happy childhood growing up. But what I didn't realize until a few years later, maybe into my adolescence, that we were the only family in our neighborhood where the mother and father were not, in fact, an intact couple. Oh. My parents um, split when I was about three or four years old. My father moved to Queens. But the standard in our neighborhood was that it, w it was an African-American neighborhood and everybody was a married couple. And all the children were there. Friends of mine would have lots of cousins, and they'd have aunts and uncles and grandparents, all within a couple of blocks of each other. You didn't have that. We had zero, none of that. So, so our childhood was one where, while my my parents they had an aspiration of they came to the United States in order to accumulate wealth, and my mother, who had gone as far as the second form in the British system, maybe sixth or seventh grade. Her admonition to her three children was that if the Rockefellers can do it and the Carnegies can do it, then you damn well can do it. Right. So we were first-generation Americans. So our history and understanding of who we were as black people could in many ways be seen as very, very culturally and historically different from the other black people in our neighborhood who were... African-American, but the next generation could have been Georgia or North Carolina or Florida or Alabama, whereas we were an island, right. Jamaica. And growing up, I also knew that my grandfather was from China. 
because my mother looked distinctly and decidedly Chinese. So my brothers and I were just black kids hanging out, playing on the block right. until she stepped outside. So in some ways... And then there was a lot of questions. Well, in some ways, I dreaded when my mother came outside. Really? Some ways, I, it was, I was happy to see my mother outside. But while we were all playing outside as black people, and that historically in this country, when people think of black people as mixed with another race, it's usually white, right? right? But I don't have that. Right. It, 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 for me, it was Chinese. And in our neighborhood, any Chinese person in our neighborhood was probably the owner of the Chinese restaurant or the Chinese laundry, right? We were not different until our mother showed up. Right. The difference that I felt in our neighborhood was largely around not having any family. Right. It wasn't about our race or, or our mixed race. It was everything about they have cousins, they have aunts and uncles, and you they go down right. south for the summer. How come we never go anywhere and right. where's our family? Right. And that for me was the biggest it's a big loss. Yeah, a big it was a loss, you, yeah. a- absolutely. And for your mother as well, as, right. obviously. So did your mother work? She did. What did she do? She didn't. My mother didn't work consistently outside of the house because the years of um, battling with my father, which which really were battles, ended up with my mother um, having an injury to her leg, which she couldn't stand for long periods of time. So my mother overwhelmingly used the skill that she'd learned in Jamaica, which was, my mother was a master seamstress. So did you guys have money growing up? Well, we were on welfare. We had no money. You had no money. We did not have money. Um, on occasion, my mother would bet a dime or a nickel or something, and occasionally she'd win maybe once a year. But for the most part, we did not have money. My mother made much of her income by uh, her sewing. And did your dad contribute? Was he a my part dad of your life? Con- my dad contributed under duress. My father actually took my mother to court, family court, with some consistency because he wanted full custody. My father um, was actually a skilled technician, and he owned a home in Queens, New York. Uh, We all had our own bedrooms, and he put our names on the deed in order to show us that he'd bought this home for us. But we didn't want to live with him. So my two older brothers and I went to court with my father, and then the judge asked us to come into his chambers. He sat me on his lap, which of course would never happen today, (laughs) right? But he sat me on his lap, nothing happened. And he asked me and my brothers if we had a choice, who would we want to live with? Now my father had told us that we, if we were asked, that we must tell the judge we want to live with him. My brothers were frightened into silence. And I perked up, yeah, we want to live with our mom. But our father told us to not say that. He said that we have to to say that we want to live with him, but we don't want to live with him. And so the judge ruled that we would live with our mother. That's very telling about who you are today. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not good at being uh, contained. I'm, I'm not good at that. All right, so let's talk about um, your education as a child. I know Mm. that this was something that was, you lived with your mother, and I know that education was something that she really valued. And in the documentary, you tell a quick story about something that she said to you that was very profound. Tell us about that. (laughs) Sure. Well, uh, in China, the United States, the name for the United States is it's Gold Mountain. It translates to Gold Mountain. And that's because people came here to mine, they came to California to mine gold and silver. So my mother grew up with this belief, you know, that you just have to know how to make money and you can make money. There's, there, what can hold you back? Now, it's an interesting perspective, but my mother and my father both believe that the key in the United States to wealth would be an excellent education. So I, from day one, I went to Catholic school for 12 years, so from day one, I was the straight-A student always, you know, I'm the president of the class, and I'm helping the teacher, the nun, and all that. And on this particular report card day, I came home in the third grade with uh, something other than an A. One grade was not an A. It was a B. And I handed my mother my report card. She, you know, she perused it. She stared at one side, stared at the other side, and then she 
leaned in, and, and I like to say not the Sheryl Sandberg leaning in. <laughs> she got very, very, very close to my face and was very stern and said, I did not come to this country for you to get a B. I was frozen. Yeah. And do you understand? Yes, Mommy. If I thought that a B was the best that you could do, then I would be okay with that. But you know and I know. And all I remember is it trailing off and me saying to myself, well, I guess I'll never do that again. Whether they were our goals or not, we were to fulfill her goals. And, and it sounds like your grandfather's goals as well. And also my father's goals. We grew up with the knowledge that our parents had left familiarity, friends and family, come to the United States and instilled in us all of their dreams and hopes and beliefs. And my mother was not the person you wanted to disappoint. She would sit and cry and lament about what had she done wrong and why won't we cooperate. And, you know, there's no, there would be no consoling her, you know. So, so we grew up in a way where my mother instilled in us that we had no one except ourselves. Right. And because of that, no one could come between us. That's probably a huge part of why all three of you are so successful today. Probably. And, you know, but then how many parents tell their children, I don't care if you get married. You're, you, whoever you marry cannot come between you and your brother and sister. Right. It cannot. And, I, you know, it, it, the extremism of that meant that, you know, we, we stick together to this day. We stuck, we've stuck together for our, our entire lives and, and quite possibly to the sort of amusement of other people, you know. What is with those three? Right. But that's the way we are. Okay. So I want to start with um, one of your sparks. And so I understand that um, when you took the SAT and you got your scores, you did very, very well. But I guess there were some people that told you that your journey might be different than kind of where you ended up. Tell us about right, that. Right. Well, I was in high school and uh, my class had about 700 students. And I think there were about 14 or 15 of us who were students of color. And uh, that was the first time I think I'd ever had guidance counseling. So I went to the guidance counselor's office and I, she, you know, she asked me what were my goals. And I said, well, I would go to an Ivy League or a seven sister school that I was going to apply to, you know, Yale and, and Columbia and Mount Holyoke and Radcliffe. And she started laughing. So Ivy League was something that you always kind of set your eye on. Well, absolutely, because the definition of college in my house was that. Got it. Right. Nobody had gone to college. But when they talked about college. That was the expectation. Right? Again, if the Carnegies can do it. You can do and it. And the Rockefellers can do it. So if, my, if they could go to Yale and Harvard, you're that. going to. We, we never, I never had a thought of going to City College of New York. I love that. So when I told this nun that I was going to do this, she laughed, and she laughed heartily to the point where she almost laughed herself to tears. And when she finished laughing, she said, Paula, don't you know people like you don't go to schools like that? And I said, sister, we better call the cardinal and let him know that they're keeping the Catholics out. Wow. And she just looked at me. The laughing stopped. She looked at me, and I said to her, you call this guidance, I will never come here again. And I walked out. So was it because you were a woman? Is it because you were African-American? No, because I was black. That was it. That was it, because I was black. When I told my mother this story, of course she was outraged. Um, My brother was in his first year at Harvard Business School. So my brother said to me, where are they directing you all to go to college? And I said, well, the Catholic schools, Fordham and Iona and St. John's University. He said, well, wh- you know, what did the other kids, what, what did your friends get? What did, what did the black and Latino kids get? And I told him, you know, everybody's scores was like 1,300 plus. And he said... 1,300. Mm. Did you put a lot of effort into that? Well, we took the PSA practice course. Okay. Yeah, but we didn't, we didn't have like... We Tutors, didn't have money for... Yeah. yeah, oh, God, no. Okay. So um, he said, get everybody, you know, over to our apartment this weekend so 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 they all came over like 10 of us 10 were sitting there and my my brother brought with him his girlfriend who was 
a senior at Swarthmore. And when we sat and told them what our scores were and what we were getting in our AP courses, they were like, are you kidding? And we're like, why would we be kidding? So, no, 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 you can go to Yale, you can go to, you know, um, Harvard, you can go to, they just, they just started naming all these schools. And we were like, we said, really? So my brother said, just get all the applications and start applying. When we graduated, <laughs> so my, my, my high school, the commencement program would list the student's name and all the schools that the student had, to, had been admitted to. And the black and Latino students, it was Worcester Polytech, it was Wesleyan, it was Swarthmore and Vassar, and it just went on and on and on and on. And you could see the other parents looking through this book saying, wait a minute, how come my kid didn't? Well, your kid wasn't encouraged to apply. Right. So at my high school, which is one of the top Catholic high schools in New York City, um, that year, the graduating class of 1970, all of the black students went, and Latino students went to these amazing colleges. And from that point on, you saw everybody. Everyone, by the way, had the scores to get in. This was a school to which you had to take an entrance exam and score at least a 95 on right. the entrance exam to get in. So, so it was kids. a whole population yeah. of kids. But, but the Catholic feeder schools were where everyone was being directed, either right. that or NYU or Lehman College, just the local schools. Not that they're bad, but no thought of competing in the Ivy League or Seven Sisters schools. And after that, everything changed. So you, and, and years later, I became a trustee of the school. You did. Oh, yeah, I'm still a trustee. <laughs> the library is named for my mother. Oh, beautiful. So your brother called this meeting. Mm. How many people were there? Maybe 10. And literally changed your course. Just changed, changed everybody's lives. And by the way... And it seems like generations after that as well. Oh, Because you guys sure. kind of set the bar. Oh, yeah. Our, our, the next generations, of w without question. And we've all stayed best friends forever. And in fact, um, in about... Two weeks, we're all gathering in Miami because I have to be down there for a conference. And there's fully, I think, 12 of us who knew each other as pimply-faced 13-year-olds. I love it. But we, we get together periodically. Beautiful. Yeah. What was your major? Well, journalism chose me. Okay. Um, my major, I had two majors and a minor. I majored in history, um, black studies, which now is usually called Africana studies, right. and education. So my senior year in college, one of my really good friends who was in journalism school at Columbia, she came back to visit the campus and planted in my head this notion that I could be a journalist. And she said, you should go to journalism school now. Remember, this is, this is now 1973. And I, and I literally said to her, what's that? And she said, journalism school, you know, reporters and editors. And, and I said, black people have those jobs? And she said, well, not a lot, but yeah. So, hmm. And I'd always thought of history in a very loving and affectionate way. I was always very interested in history. And I always saw newspapers as a daily history book. I mean, my mother did not know <laughs> the standard that you teach children to read when they're in school. So consequently, my brothers and I all knew how to read when we were three years old. Mm -hmm. And my mother taught us to read with newspapers. Wow. So my mother was a news junkie. And she didn't know that, one, you're not supposed to let children read newspapers. And two, children, you know, to, to, to the point that in the next generation, when my, my, when my niece was going to school, they called me to the school to ask me, in a private school, why didn't you tell us that she could read? And I said, I don't know. I, I thought, you know, she's kindergarten. I said, yeah, but she reads at a sixth grade level, and she keeps wandering out and going to get the other books. And I said, well, and they asked if they could skip her. Same thing they'd asked my mother about us, and my mother said, no. You, I want them to stay with their own age. I don't want them with children who are older, more mature in thought than they are. And I said the same thing about my niece. And so I said to them, just give her more work. But, but I don't want her with older children. Right. That's smart. Yeah. So you were obviously very driven from a young age. Um, sometimes that doesn't always translate to um, wanting a lot of financial success. What did success mean to you back then? Well, remember that the definition of adult life was my mother. Right. 
supplemented by my father. But we didn't have other relatives around to give us other perspectives. You understand? Yeah. So where we grew up, we knew because my mother said, you're not going to live in this neighborhood forever. This is a temporary location. You're not going to live here. Okay, now when that is the constant drumbeat, what you don't do is look at your tenement apartment and think, boy, I can't wait one day till I have this, right? right? It was that this is a holding pattern and it's a setback is how my mother characterized it. So success in my family was wealth. It was. Absolutely, okay. it, was, it was wealth. And as my father explained his definition of how one used that, he said, if one of you are poor, all of you are poor. If one of you is wealthy, all of you are wealthy. And so we grew up with the intention and the plan to pool our resources and make a lot of money, which yeah, is what we did. Which is what you did. Yeah. Which I was going to ask you about. It seemed like the three of you are very much kind of one unit in the way that you've kind of um, grown up and kind of established yourself from a yeah. from a career standpoint. Yeah. Well, or you we weighed each other. We support each other. We weighed in on each other's careers. I mean, there were points in a place in time where such things were occurring as the first black person to do this and the first black person to do that. We never approached it as, well, if we do this, we'll be the first black whatever. Right. We did it in a way that that's an opportunity. Let's go do it. We had a brownstone in Harlem that was fully paid for that we'd purchased. And so I had the freedom of knowing if anything ever happens, I can go home. Right. right? Um, a 7,000 square foot house that we who had grown up on welfare and owned nothing, this was ours. So as I worked my way around the country and took different jobs, um, there were just some things that philosophically or intrinsically, I just, I'm not going to do that. I want to do that, but I don't want to do that, right? And then my brother is the first person who explained to me the concept, the financial concept, of the budgeting concept of zero basing. And so that actually assisted me in getting my job as vice president and news director at NBC's largest station in New York City. And that's because I was almost as a challenge given this $50 million budget to manage. I came in under budget. That got the attention of the bigger bosses who wanted to understand how I was able to accomplish something that many, many, many men, many, many white men, in fact, had not been able to do. And I said, zero basing, and it was zero basing. We're like, well, like, what's that? And I was like, wow, dude, really? Okay. And my brother taught me that when I was in my 30s, and it served me well. Okay, so I want to talk about your career and how you kind of jumped up um, through the ranks. So tell us kind of where you started. I also understand that you had um, a snag that you can tell us a little bit about where you were passed over for the VP news director position. So we want to hear a bit about what happened there. Sure. So remember that I, I started out as a newspaper journalist at first, and I had, uh, I think, uh, three jobs as a newspaper journalist, and the final one was I was um, assistant city editor at a newspaper in Texas. And then I was offered a job to cross over into TV, and I turned that down and turned it down and turned it down until I researched and saw that around the United States, cities that had two newspapers were going to one newspaper. That made me say I should look at my future in newspaper journalism. I was offered this position yet again in television, and I took that job. Once I took that job, then I started researching what are the highest roles in television journalism. The highest role in a local station is news director. So I admittedly had my sights on that job and kept taking positions that would lead to that. I would even volunteer to work on my vacation if someone was going to be out and you know, nobody else could cover it. But once they see that you, uh, in an acting or fill-in position, can accomplish it, then that sort of puts you right. one higher rung up. Makes sense. Right. So I was hired out of Houston, Texas, where my position had been executive news director. 
Um, I was contacted by the NBC owned and operated station in New York, but they wanted to bring me in in the number two role, not the number one role. Now, at that station, the history of that station, which goes back in, you know, to the early 40s, was that it was always men and always white men. So I was brought in in the number two position um, as assistant news director. The news director left and they went to another person in the corporation in another city and brought him in as news director. That person left, and they didn't bring in another person from inside the company. They went outside the company and brought in a guy from San Francisco. So uh, in the breach, both times I served as acting news director until this, these guys came in. And each time, we would get to number one in our newscasts. So, you know. But they, I, but they wouldn't give you the position. No. They they wouldn't they they did not give me the position because again, you have to see it right. You've got to visualize it. There were very few women, first of all, who were news directors. Right. There were very few blacks. Period. And there were zero black women who would have been in a market the size of New York, Los Angeles, Chicago. It's like yeah, no. And so, um, again, the opportunity came for me to get that position and I was passed over and I was outraged. I was outraged and I- Did they explain to you why you weren't chosen? What was um, their reason? Well, the, the explanation to me was that they just thought that this guy was better poised for it, right? And that in fact was how I ended up being handed a major portion of his job, which was to manage the news department's budget. Now, once I managed the news department's budget, mind you, I already said that I had been uh, in the breach leading the news department, and each time I was acting news director, we would win in ratings, right? But then, now, when I've already demonstrated my financial budgeting and and handling management of all that, so now what what could possibly be the reason why I don't get it? Right. Um, So then the next go-round, I got it. And yeah, Love it. <laughs> so so I did get it, but I'd spent six years as assistant news director before I became news director, and the gods were smiling upon me because uh, in that first year, for the first time in sixteen years, all of our newscasts got to number one. Right. So you had some major accomplishments. With major you accomplishment. In charge. It was like, what is she doing? What is happening? And my, when I got. Uh, I did that for a while, and then I was promoted to come here to Los Angeles to be the president and general manager of KNBC. And you were the first female black woman to ever do that. Yeah, absolutely. And I was the first in a top five market. Wow. So what did happen? That's a huge accomplishment. Amazing. Um, Amazing. But 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 keep in mind that me being hired into that role was me being available and ready and prepared. Somebody had to hire me, right? right? My father would say nothing could be worse than being presented with an opportunity and not taking advantage of it, Mm -hmm. right? So we were always trained to be flexible and ready and ambidextrous, be ready for anything. So, So when I got here... I actually did take our ratings down a little bit before they came up, and they did. I did because uh, I came here with the intention of wiping out the helicopter chases mm. from our newscast, which I did. And why? Why is that? Well, philosophically, um, if we go back to me saying that um, journalism is a daily history book, uh-huh. and I had maybe upwards of two hundred people working for me on a daily basis to produce all of these newscasts with content, right. etc. And my focus was not celebrity trials and things like that. My focus had to do with infrastructure, with homelessness, uh, you know, for example. Things that really mattered. Things that really matter. Um, But, for example, the numbers of children in L.A. who are homeless and who live in homeless shelters or not and still go to school. When you think about bullying, right, where, where do you, you know, the kinds of vulnerabilities that those children, also without having a regular place to study and get their work done, these are all the things to me that mattered. So, so I you changed the focus. I to changed things that I mattered. Changed the focus, streamlined the focus, added an investigative team, and I wasn't trying to find out where the dirty sheets were in hotels, which was right. the kind of stuff that was being peddled around the country. So, so for me, it really was a matter of 
things that people really cared about, like really cared about. And once we tapped into that, then of course our ratings went right. up. So right. Took out the sensationalism and went and into get that out of the way. Not interested in yeah, that. You, right. You touch people in their their soul and their heart, and that made a difference. Right. right. And so, in the meantime, we we purchased. Um, the Spanish language network Telemundo, right. and I also became responsible for the two Telemundo television stations here in Los Angeles. So I was running three of them at once. And How then, many people were under you at any given time? Maybe 400, 450, something like that. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, big yeah. responsibility. A big responsibility, yes. But but what I saw my responsibility as is that there is the cascading, there's a team Right, and I have a team that that would report to me, and it was important to me that that team be comprised of as much excellence. I always tried to hire people who were really smarter than me, right? Because there's no point in all of us sitting in the room and we all know the same thing, right? Right. I sort of felt like Yoda, you know, in the yeah. Jedi Knights. That that really was my goal. So big responsibility, but. A big shared responsibility. For sure. For I think it's definitely a pattern. I've interviewed so many successful women, and it seems that one of the through lines is, you know, this ability as a leader to put smart people in place around you. I find that a lot of um, people that um, struggle with finding success are scared to put people in place that are smarter than them, and I find that to be an incredible weakness. It's an insecurity. I'm not, I'm not going to say I wasn't raised with insecurities. I was Different. raised... I was raised to not let them debilitate me, that, that if there's an insecurity, charge right at it and deal with it and right. keep moving. All right, let's move on to um, another chapter of your life. I'm not sure if it happened at the same time or if it was a different time, but you became the CEO and owner of the LA Sparks. And this is just kind of a little interesting an anecdote. Um, people always say, who are you interviewing next? And you know, I'll kind of list off your accomplishments. And the second I say that, they're like, oh, she must come from money. And it was interesting that, like, I heard that comment a few times and it kind of, like, took me back, the fact that you, you know, owned a team. And, you know, just when I went and did my research on you and, you know, found out that, you know, you came from a life of poverty as a mm -hmm. child and you and your family built this, I was, like, just so empowered and just wowed. And so I want to, you know, take a moment to just stop and I want everyone to realize it wasn't handed to you. It wasn't family money. You guys built this. So talk about how that came to be. It really was an emotional decision. I was working at NBC Universal when a radio host by the name of Don Imus referred to the Rutgers University women's basketball team as nappy-headed hoes. And I was mortified. I was, and, and you know, they're, they're 18, 19, 20-year-old 20, young ladies. I remember this. Was, mm -hmm. It was all over the, the It was media, all over all, everywhere. All over the news. It was, it was everywhere. Yeah. And, and that man changed a lot of people's lives, including his own. Certainly I was outraged, but, but my, my family, through our investments, had at that point already become independently wealthy. And so I was offered by my then boss, the CEO, to take on the full-time role as the chief diversity officer. And I said, no, I mean, I was doing that in addition to my day job, right? right. I was... I, Just add it on. Right. And, and he said, well, you know, we, you know, we really need to, you know, we've just acquired Telemundo. We need to really get this going inside the company. And I said, yeah, no, I'm not really good in an advisory capacity, which unfortunately I think many people would see that role as. So ultimately what did occur was Don Imus said what he said. I was outraged. The week before he said this, my family had been offered the opportunity to invest in the Sparks. I grew up watching basketball. I love basketball. And we said no. Because as a business, you know, athletics teams, sports teams, that, that's not a business that, with which we were familiar. But when he said this, I who walk around with an afro, right. my hair is natural. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I heard that, I thought, okay, this man must not know who he's talking to when he says this. So I said to my family, let's, let, let, let's buy the team. So that was an emotional decision. We bought the team. So his comment is mm -hmm. what shifted your entire direction. His, his comment did, in fact, shift because what I felt important 
to make clear was that no one should feel comfortable getting on anyone's airwaves speaking about people that way. And since we had a considerable amount of discretionary income, discretionary money, it was like, well, why don't we do this? And so when I retired from NBC Universal, then I went over to um, work as the uh, CEO of the team, for, I think for about three or four years, and I sold the team to Magic Johnson. Right. I love the reason why you bought the team. I mean, it seems like it wouldn't be a lot of the same motivation for others that buy, but you know, you were really kind yeah. of set out to put out a message and do something different. Yeah, it was a, I think, a, a gauntlet that needed to go down in order to establish you can comfortably say things like that. So you hit another snag. It wasn't kind of all roses owning a team. Mm. Tell us um, a little bit about that that time, how difficult it was. Well, the team was fun. I mean, I enjoyed it immensely. Right. The difficulty is that the sports fans don't generally flock to women's basketball. Right. We actually had the highest attendance in the league, and we and I negotiated, um, which was at the time the only local basketball television contract. Most fans would rather see an NCAA game before they would go to a women's basketball game. And I find that very unfortunate, considering that the games are very, very, very uh, competitive. And I'd estimate that 99% of the women in the WNBA are college graduates. But it was just tough to make money or, or, or even to underwrite the cost of the team. So we were underwriting the team at, to the tune of seven figures a year. Wow. It's hard to swallow. Uh, tough. As, and, and, no matter how much fun you're having doing. No matter how much fun I'm having, no matter how many sponsorships there are, all of the above. Right. And, you know, the, the emotionalism and the commitment to women's um, sports, which I still have, that just was one where eventually it was going to drain us. Well, it seems like your family's ownership was kind of a bridge to give it some new meaning or to kind of position it differently? Well, I think that, I don't know that we gave it new meaning. What I do believe is that uh, I answered for myself if this could be a financially stable and lucrative business and figured out that given the assets that we brought to it, those were not enough. Right. But if you have deep pockets, and if you can negotiate deals with where there is advertising not only for the women's team, but the men's team and the hockey team, right. then, then, it can, then it makes yeah. sense. Yeah. So in business, you made a hard decision. Yeah. You let it go. Yeah. And now it's magics. And now, now it's magics. And and I, I still am in touch with some of the players. I love that. And some of the managers. Yeah, they're still, they're, they're great people. They're, I just, I love them. Okay. So we're going to move on because I have, again, we can talk for hours. You've done so much. <laughs> Um, so I just want to list some of your other accomplishments. Um, so we talked about you being the former president owner of the LA Sparks. Um, you were also the owner of the Africa Channel Cable Network. Are you still? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. And um, you were also the former LA Public Library Commissioner. Mm -hmm. You were the former VP Los Angeles Police um, Commission. Mm -hmm. Again, you've also produced a documentary, and I kind of want to end on this piece um, just because this was something that was so interesting and different than anything that I've done on She Dynasty. What I loved about it is that you've had this incredibly kind of rich career, and it seems like there was something that was a missing piece but also something that drove you to where your success was. And I love, there's a moment in the film, there's two moments that I loved in the film. Um, one where you, your mom said that, you know, you had to make it and you guys actually did and you showed her that you could do it. Now, I'm assuming your, your parents are no longer with us. Right. So not. did she ever get to see kind of your success and kind of relish in what you had built? Well, um, my mother thought that success meant owning your own business or being a doctor. So one day, one evening, as she was sort of poo-pooing what I did for a living, I decided I was going to show her my the stub from my paycheck when I was still working in New York. Uh, and uh, I got home from work that evening, and I said, Ma, take a look. Take a look at this. And she looked at it, and she said, what? And I said, 
I said, yeah, that's my biweekly pay. I get that every two weeks. And she, she just looked at me. And I said, and that doesn't include any bonus. <laughs> and she, she said, and my mother, in full mommy fashion, said, they pay you that much money for doing, for doing what you do? That's funny. And I, I started laughing. I said, yes. And she just shook her head and walked, walked away. I said, you don't have to be a doctor. When my daughter was about, uh, my mother was, was still living, of course, and my mother was about, I don't know, my daughter was about 13 years old. My daughter announced she was going to be a doctor. Then my mother loved me again. Because if, if you can't be a doctor. Somebody has to be a doctor. If, if, you, if you spawn a doctor, then okay, then I'm good with you. So I, I, my, my mother, you know, sometimes some of the things would, would, would break my heart. But on the other hand, they made me laugh so often because it was just very simplistic right. for her. There were, there, were, there were no complications. It's black and white. Just get it done. So she got to see some of your success. Oh, absolutely, she did, that. and as did and your my dad, father. And your father, yeah. too. Yeah. Okay, Okay. so um, the other moment in the movie that I just loved, there was a moment where um, there's a symbol that you show in Chinese that kind of has three meanings to it, and you, like, really identify. I guess the family has is almost like a crest or um, a philosophy. Can you talk a bit about what that is and what it meant to you and how it related sure. to your life? So in uh, Shenzhen, China, which is where our ancestral village is located, over the, the gate, it says um, family, education, prosperity. So when I found my grandfather's descendants, of which there, um, we, we met about 300 of them on that very first time that we went to 300? Mm-hmm. 300. And I also want to add that you took 21 family members with you mm-hmm. on an airplane and flew them. Business to Ch- class. Business class. <laughs> yeah. And earned all the money yourself, your whole family. Yeah, and we did all this did. And took the whole, I mean, sure. what an incredible, incredible journey for your entire family. Yeah. Well, and just the visuals, just to see. It had to happen. Uh, so the flight sorry. attendants asked us if we were going to a convention, and we left. Well, we kind of. Kind of. Yeah. <laughs> so go um, back to yeah. Go so back to. so um, when when my brothers and I saw this, and 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 our cousin translated, uh, you know, so it's family, education, and prosperity, and and we 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 were dumbfounded that this is all my mother ever preached, and there it is. I love that. Uh, emblazoned on the gate. Uh, to our family's village, um, so you felt like you were home in a sense. Yeah, it was it was a very surreal. Um, the entire time, I felt like I was floating. Um, I loved how welcoming everybody was to you. I I, w- I didn't expect that. I don't know what what I expected. Neither but I did, did a lot of people. I didn't yeah. expect it, and just you know, just to see visually, you know, how different everyone looks, and you guys all interacting and how they just accepted you so quickly. Was there, was there any um, sense of anyone in that room that didn't feel that way? Or was it just an overwhelming, like, you guys are part of us? And What I believe uh, did occur is that while my grandfather had eight children, the first three were mixed race. One, so he had my mother with one African-Jamaican woman, and he had the next two children with another African-Jamaican right. woman. Then his family sent a Chinese woman for him to marry sight unseen, and with her, he had five children. Right. But they were all born in Jamaica. Interesting. Right? So all of the five um, so they kind Han of, Chinese. So they kind of got it. Well, because they were raised what, in an environment where they saw people like you and... Yes, what they knew was that their father went to Jamaica and had families in Jamaica. Certainly with the Chinese wife, he had family, but he also had families with two African Jamaican women. And remember, historically, and regardless of culture, there are many civilizations where and societies where men could have as many wives as they could afford, right? My grandfather was... Was, you know, he did pretty well for himself in yes. Jamaica. So what I know happened, because I asked my Uncle Jawu if he was surprised, and he said he'd never heard of us. But on the other hand, if my mother was the eldest, the oldest living child, and she was born when my grandfather was 28 years old, are we to think that he never had a physical relationship with a woman until he was 28. Right. 
I said to my uncle, there's a reasonable chance that after this book comes out and the film comes out, more people may say, right? The fascinating thing about this, though, all my, my grandfather's eight children, my mother is the one who most closely resembles him. Wow. Right? So it was, it was, it was like a slam dunk. My uncle looked at my mother's picture. I'd never seen photos of my grandfather ever. I had no idea what he looked like. And the first time we met, I asked, and so we exchanged photos, and my uncle said, she looks like him. And I was, and, and I, at that moment, in my, my silent prayer to my mother, I said, Mom, you're, you're finally accepted. You have a family. So I am one of those believers who, if you have a strong enough energy and sense and all the above, my mother may not physically be here, but my mother's not gone. So, so wherever I have gone, and I just came back from China a, couple, a few days ago, um, wherever I have gone, you know, my mother's there. She's, it's all good. Okay. Well, I think we have covered a lot. Um, again, I, you know, your story is very different than anybody else's um, that I've done on She Dynasty. We could obviously focus on your career and all of the incredible accomplishments in detail, but I chose not to do that today, just because when I heard that your, um, you know, sense of what made you feel whole and successful was so much about your personal identity and filling a hole and filling a void. I thought this is such an important story to tell and a different one because I think a lot of people, you know, deal with not knowing part of who they are or their past and wanting to kind of understand that and you were able to go seek it out and get answers and it's very emotional in the movie when you watch and you see you know you there with family and looking at things and touching things and just feeling that um you know the the last piece of the puzzle is kind of put in place and so i think for those who are listening who struggle with that it's an incredible incredible simple but awesome film to watch that is very moving and i just want to thank you for sharing your story with us today Thank you. I, and I encourage people to spend a moment, if they don't already know their genealogy, do it. Because when you know from where you have come, it helps you focus where you're going. Yes. It's difficult to behave badly when you have a legacy to uphold. And I'm the 151st generation wow. In my family, with a documented history that goes back to the year 1006 BC. Yeah. So it, it's it's not possible to just say I'm just breezing my way through life. Right. What other people might consider to be success, to me, is it's something to get done. But the success is knowing that I have upheld and lived up to my family's legacy. Right. So thank you. Yes. And the one other thing I just want to say is, you know, obviously your mother's not here with us, but wow, do I just feel her through you. So you are doing an amazing job of upholding her legacy. So thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. 